Hey, and welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. Hi, I'm Steve Rubin. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, author, journalist, film historian, and editor, Peter Winkler, who is a fellow UCLA Bruin. Hi, Peter. Hi there. So good to have you. Uh, we've been getting great responses to the podcast. People love film history. Um, I should mention we're on the Lock 22 network tonight. My producer is Ben Shrewsbury, always on target with his his engineering skills and everything else. And I'm um, very happy to have you with us, Peter. And I love, let me tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, Val Holly, the author of the definitive biography of James B. Dean, calls Peter Winkler a genuine Hollywood historian. Uh, Peter is the author of Dennis Hopper, The Wild Ride of a Hollywood Rebel. He also edited The Real James Dean, Intimate Memories from Those Who Knew Him Best, which was published by Chicago Review Press, which also published my, my two books, The James Bond Movie Encyclopedia and The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Uh, Peter's been a journalist. He's written for many magazines. Uh, I noticed that you have written for a magazine I know very well, Film Facts. What, yes. I'm curious, what did you do for Film Facts? Oh, gosh. Um, first thing I did for Film Facts was a close to 10,000 word biography of Nick Adams. Really? Really? Yeah. So between James Dean and Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams, you were you were really into Hollywood Rebels. Yes, definitely. So so tell me and tell the listeners what what inspired you as a, a young person to become so interested in entertainment and the movies. I loved movies from an early age. My father introduced me to science fiction film, which was my really, for quite a number of years, my primary interest. I just loved and had an appetite for any science fiction film. We would go together to the movie theaters to see anything from, well, um, Die Monster Die with Nick Adams to uh, Godzilla versus the thing, or King Kong versus Godzilla, or Dinosaurus. Uh, on TV, of course, by the time I was uh, a few years old already, you could see great films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, uh, The Thing from Another World. Uh, so it was just like uh, every Saturday, there would be uh, uh, some science fiction or horror films on and I would always uh, that that would be like the time I reserved I would always uh, set aside time to uh, watch those films. I think you and I are definitely kindred spirits. Uh, I as I've told the listeners many times I used to go to my Saturday movie theater which was across the street literally 300 yards from my front door and see a double feature at the local theater where you got two movies, uh, a short, the newsreels, cartoons, previews of coming attractions, 
It was just, uh, you spent the whole day at the movie theater. So I completely yeah. get it. Absolutely. So you, um, did, what city did you grow up in? Well, uh, for a while we lived, I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Then we moved to California where we lived in Lakeview Terrace. And uh, we also lived for a while on a, a street on uh, a house on Irvine Avenue in North Hollywood. And then we moved for reasons of my father's employment to Blytheville, Arkansas, population 25,000. But they did have uh, movie theaters. As a matter of fact, that a movie theater for the white population and a movie theater uh, for the black population because it was the uh, early 60s and it was highly segregated. There was a drive-in theater as well. And then uh, around 1967, we moved back permanently to California. And what city were you living in then? Uh, which city, when we moved back to California, yeah. we were living in Arkansas and then we moved back to California. No, uh, what city in California were you? Oh, uh, North Hollywood. North Hollywood, of course, of course. Um, so you went to UCLA, I see. You're a fellow Bruin. Did you study film at UCLA? No, I uh, studied history. I wish I had studied film <laughs> instead. I thought history was the respectable major and I was planning or I was probably going to go to law school. So I figured I should take the respectable major in order to have a bet better shot at going to law school. I wish that I had made other decisions, including applying to uh, film school as a graduate uh, school. Well, uh, I can't believe how many um, parallels we have because I was a history major at UCLA. Um, I, I wrote for the Daily Bruin and that was my earliest writing experience in a capacity as a journalist. What was your first professional writing gig? Well, I guess technically I wasn't paid for it, but I had a letter published in Analog Magazine criticizing a column that somebody whose name I will let leave uh, unsaid uh, wrote on science fiction film, which I disliked intensely. And I was particularly upset because uh, Analog did not have a regular film columnist. And the fact that they chose somebody who, in my opinion, was misinformed uh, kind of burned me up. So that's why I wrote the letter and it was published. But professionally, my first writing on film uh, would be, I guess, um, Laserdisc reviews. I wrote Laserdisc reviews for a publication called Video Theater that was for video files. And then after that, uh, film facts. Ah, so you worked for Mike Stein, one of the great film lovers in America today, who every year tells me he's retiring and the magazine is done. And yet what happens, I get another issue. In fact, I, I went outside today, got my mail and there was an issue of film facts on its way in. He puts together a very smart magazine. Yes, oh, I like it very much. What was, was, was the Nick Adams piece your first piece for them? The Nick Adams piece was my first piece for them, yes. I queried them and they said they were interesting, they were interested. So 
uh, I actually had a book proposal that I was shopping around. I wanted to do an entire biography and uh, it didn't uh, click. Uh, so I took the summary of his life that I had written in the proposal um, and I expanded that and that's what became the article. For those listeners who don't know who Nick Adams is, could you give them a quick tutorial? Sure. Nick Adams was an American actor. I think he was born in 1931. He died in February 1968. I think he was 36 years old at the time. He first got roles. He first got small roles supporting roles in films. For instance, he's in Mr. Roberts. Uh, he's in the FBI story, Sing the Boy Sing. Um, and then he had a fairly major supporting role uh, in uh, No Time for Sergeants, which got him some publicity. And then he met a gentleman named Andrew Fennedy, who was a writer and convinced Andrew Fennedy, they became friendly, to write a series for him. And Fennedy wrote the series, The Rebel, where he played a uh, ex-Confederate soldier roaming the West, Johnny Yuma. Well, you got to indulge me here. Johnny Yuma was a rebel. Was a legend. He <laughs> the trail of truth. <laughs> You know, that was a time when they actually had theme songs for television series. It was the right. golden age. I, 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 I'm a big fan of Nick's. I, 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 and No Time for Sergeants, his, his, um, his character opposite Andy Griffith was just so funny. Uh, ben Whitledge, I think he played. That's ben, right, Ben Whitledge, exactly. Yes, who, who wants to be in the Army and does not want to be in the Air Force. Uh, it was a funny role. And I, I certainly remember him in the FBI story at the before the titles in fact that's i think exactly, that's exactly right i don't know if that was one of the first pre-title sequences but it must have been one of the one of the first pre-title sequences and he has a he has a great exit line and when he's proven to be guilty and he says where to send his mail after that send it to hell <laughs> Those were the days when we got great quotable dialogue. Um, so you um, you certainly are interested in actors of that period. Tell me how you got involved in putting together this book for Chicago Review Press on James Dean. Well, when I was 10 or 11, my sister brought me home a book from the library. Thank you. Uh, called Beethoven by his contemporaries. And it was exactly what it said it was. It was impressions of Beethoven, uh, recollections of him by his contemporaries, by his musical contemporaries. And so a number of years later, having read probably every book on James Dean in the English language, uh, I decided they all quote little bits of articles and little bits from uh, memoirs of people who acted with James Dean. And sometimes there are bits of interviews, but never the piece in its entirety, never the whole magazine article, 
never the entire section from a memoir, a show business memoir about uh, their recollections with James Dean or never the entire interview. So I thought an anthology arranged roughly in chronological order of that material would be a new view of Dean, a new angle, almost like an oral biography. And I started putting it together. What, what did you have a fascination with Dean himself? Was he someone you were very interested in? Yes. For a while when I was going to college, I was, I would say, nearly obsessed with James Dean. I can't really explain why. I mean, there are obvious reasons, the quality of his acting, his looks, uh, the movies themselves. But for a while, I became obsessed with Dean. And fortunately, it was the mid 70s, which was the first revival of interest in him. So there were about a half dozen different books that I latched onto. There was a documentary, James Dean, the first American teenager. There was a made for TV movie, James Dean, that was done, produced and written by Bill. Hey, hang on, hang on one second. Peter, hang on one second. Can you tell the people who are talking that we're doing some shit? Yeah. Could you, hey guys, could you cool it? I'm on a podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So back up a little bit. You uh, you were saying the 1970s was the revival. 1970s was the first revival of interest in Dean since the original interest in him in the 1950s. And there was a plethora of stuff that was available, biographies, uh, as I said, a documentary film, uh, James Dean, the first American teenager, a made-for-TV movie uh, that was written and produced by Bill Bast, who was his college friend, and who also wrote the first biography of James Dean. For those listeners who have certainly seen his movies, uh, could you talk a little bit about what separated James Dean from the rest of the actors of his era? Because it sound, it, I, my impression is that his, his form of acting, his mere presence was a very startling transition for Hollywood. Yes, well, first of all, he has a quality of mesmerizing the audience. Uh, one of the things I noted was I was looking at some screen tests that they did some costume tests for East of Eden. And there's no voice on them, there's no sound. And yet you see him fooling around a little with Julie Harris and you can't take your eyes off of him. That's what, it's just that um, he is so interesting to look at. He's very expressive. He has excellent body language, and he did have a kind of contemporary quality which separated him from the some of the old golden age stars. He had kind of a smoldering sexuality, didn't he? Yes, he would, he does, he is. He is very um, he is very mesmerizing sexually uh, when he puts on for the first time the red nylon jacket, the t-shirt and the jeans. It's like a caterpillar emerging from a chrysalis and becoming a full-blown butterfly. 
Wow. Well, and it's amazing. Uh, even though he did a good body of television work, he really only did three movies, didn't he? Well, three major roles. He did have some minor, very, very minor, short-lived uh, supporting roles, cameos almost. They were, but yeah, he only had three major roles. East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. And only East of Eden was released during his lifetime. That's correct. That's correct. I see, you know, although they're, they're hardly similar actors, um, the actor in the Fast and the Furious series, uh, I'm forgetting his name, Paul Walker. Paul Walker uh-huh. died in a horrible auto accident. Yes, also a Porsche. Also a Porsche. Uh, but uh, for those listeners who don't know this, and I'm sure most of you do, uh, uh, James Dean died in a terrible auto wreck uh, in California in 1955. Um, uh, it's, it's amazing to think how big a career he would have had if he had lived. Uh, I know that he, I think I read in one of the Wikipedia references that he was going to play Rocky Graziano and some, some yes. who likes me. Yes, he was contracted to do two movies. One was The Left-Handed Gun, uh, written by Gore Vidal about Billy the Kid at Warner Brothers. And then Warner Brothers was going to lend him out to MGM to do some the, somebody up there likes me, which was the Graziano biopic uh, with Pier Angeli, who was his former girlfriend, interestingly. Excellent, excellent. Um, tell us about the book itself. So you started to compile, gathering all this wonderful material in its completeness. So you could you not just quote from a story, you, you got the whole story. Yes, I uh, bought, I purchased a lot of the old movie magazines like Photoplay and Modern Screen because that's where most of these articles came from. And then there were autobiographies or showbiz memoirs by the likes of uh, people like Ilya Kazan uh, or Shelley Winters. Uh, There was an article by George Stevens. um, And uh, there was an essay, which I think is one of the best in the book by Nicholas Ray which actually I believe owes its excellence to the fact that it was probably ghostwritten by Gavin Lambert. Uh, Ray had met Gavin Lambert when Ray was promoting Rebel Without a Cause in Europe. Gavin Lambert was a writer for Sight and Sound magazine and Ray invited him to come back to Hollywood, gave gave him a ticket for the airplane and he came back to Hollywood and he helped Ray work on the screenplay for Bigger Than Life, the movie that Ray did starring James Mason. And uh, Lambert also says that they had an affair, a brief affair, which is possible. But anyway, he, I suspect, ghost wrote that essay, but it's a very uh, powerful and very insightful essay about James Dean. There's certainly a lot of talk about his sexual preferences. It seems like uh, like a young, a lot like many young people, he did a lot of experimentation. Yes, well, he did have a rep- uh, James Dean did have a relationship 
with a man named Rogers Brackett, who was 15 years older, who was an advertising executive and who directed uh, radio shows, many of the shows that his clients' products were uh, advertised on, he directed. And he met Dean and was very attracted to Dean because Brackett was gay. And Dean was at this point scraping bottom. He had dropped out of UCLA and was, <coughs> his career was not doing well. And he went to live with uh, Rogers Brackett in Los Angeles and then later for a while in New York. So certainly that could have been a quid pro quo relationship or it could have been genuine. Uh, it could have been genuine. And then Dean did have relationships with girlfriends who all say that uh, it was, they were also sexually intimate with him. So he, I guess, would qualify as uh, bisexual. It's, it's interesting when you look at the history of, I mean, you look at a rebel without a cause and you look at the three principles in that movie James Dean, Natalie Wood, and Sal Mineo, that all three of them died tragically. Yes, well, people like to talk about a curse of rebel on our cause because a number of the people died prematurely. James Dean went first, he was 24 years old. Uh, Sal Mineo, uh, excuse me, Nick Adams went uh, after that. <laughs> Uh, in 1968 of a drug overdose or a combination of drugs, although there's some question about the circumstances surrounding his death. I don't think there's any mystery there, but uh, Nick Adams' children both think that there's some foul play. Then there was Salaminio, who was stabbed to death, unfortunately, in the 70s. And then, of course, there was Natalie Wood, but some of the people, a lot of the people lived quite a long time. I mean, um, um, I'm trying to think now for a minute. Uh, Mazzola uh, and Corey Allen, um, Sidney Skolsky, the girl, uh, Beverly Long, they all uh, lived quite a long time. And there are a couple, there's Jack Greenwich is still alive, I believe. Uh, even Nick Ray, who certainly was uh, engaged in self-destructive habits, alcoholism and drugs lived to be around 70. So I'd say that, that there really is no real curse there, but because the principles died prematurely a lot of people do do think rebel without a cause is a is a is an accursed film sure i'm looking at the casting list right now and i think if i'm not mistaken because i did the twilight zone encyclopedia edward platt best known for the playing the chief on get smart i think edward platt also uh committed suicide but i think he was much older obviously yes he did i don't know what the circumstances were but he did commit suicide yes well it sounds like it was a fascinating book and i'll repeat the name of the book for the readers it's called the real james dean intimate memories from those who knew him best 
And uh, then you got involved in another book. You did a book, uh, you did a, a biography of Dennis Hopper. Tell, tell us how that came about. Well, um, when I wrote the book proposal for a biography of Nick Adams, uh, the uh, general response I got from literary agents who I queried was, Nick Adams isn't famous anymore, or Nick Adams wasn't famous. Uh, he didn't emerge the way James Dean did, and publishers want subjects of biographies that tens of thousands of people will recognize and potentially will buy. So when I put that on the back burner, I said to myself, if I do another proposal for a biography, it will be somebody who was or is famous. And uh, Dennis Hopper announced in 2007 that he was finally going to be doing his own memoir called Outtakes and that it was going to be published in September 2008. But uh, it came along and it wasn't published. So I wrote a proposal. Actually, I wrote a query letter and sent it out to some agents. And the, pro and the idea I had there was that my book would be a unauthorized biography of Dennis Hopper and would be more revealing than his because I'd looked at enough star biographies or autobiographies that I saw that many of them really weren't very self-revealing. They were an exercise in burnishing the reputation of the star. So I thought that that would be a good premise, but others didn't agree with me. So I put that one on the back burner too. Then in October, 2009, his manager announced that Dennis Hopper was going to retire from work and stay close to his home in Los Angeles to treat his prostate cancer. And I said to myself, well, I don't think Dennis Hopper is gonna be long for this earth. And I know that there will probably be one or possibly two biographies published after he dies. So why, there's no reason why I shouldn't get in there pitching and see if I can sell one. And I did. It wasn't easy, but I managed to sell one. And I wrote it. And uh, that's how that came forth. Now, did you do any interviewing for the book? I did some interviews, particularly his, uh, some of his teenage friends, some of his high school friends. Um, I was on a very tight schedule. I was supposed to write the book in six months. I did not know if I could write it in six months, but I know that interviews are extremely time consuming. So I relied mostly on the material that was already available, which was fine because Hopper, after his Blue Velvet comeback, gave a lot of interviews and was quite revealing. And other people who worked with him and knew him also wrote about him or gave interviews. So there was lots and lots of material that 
it didn't really need to be, I didn't really need to spend time repeating it. It was already there for the taking. Sure, sure. No, I think that uh, as film historians, we, we love the internet because everything's there. Just go pluck it and use it if you can. It's like if you're doing a new biography of Shakespeare, there's not a lot of people you can talk to who knew him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> certainly true. So t tell us what, uh, again, for the listeners who are perhaps not as familiar with Dennis Hopper, talk a little bit about your view of his position in Hollywood. Well, I think his primary talent was acting. I think he was a very talented actor, as can be seen from some of his best performances. For example, very early on in his career, he is in Giant, and I think he's excellent in Giant. And then later on, uh, in Apocalypse Now, even though he was high on anything you can imagine, <laughs> he was a very uh, energizing. He energized the last third of the movie, in my opinion. Well, and then, thank, uh, thank goodness for that, because I, I, my impression of Apocalypse Now has always been that if you didn't have Dennis Hopper there energizing the last part of the movie, you would be just hearing Marlon Brando doing a lot of mumbling. Yeah, I agree. Yes, definitely. And um, Blue Velvet, I mean, that was a shocking performance the first time uh, you see it. And um, let's see. Who's well, I, guess, I guess Easy Rider you would have to consider. Sure. considering the fact that he also directed the film and um he had some talent for directing his films look very good he got good cinematographers and he got good editors his films look very good easy rider is a remarkably good looking film for something that was made for only about half a million dollars and literally changed cinema overnight with the fact that this little Pisher of an indie movie was scoring major grosses around the country. Talk about capturing the flavor of the time. Yes, it did. He wanted it to be seen as a time capsule of the period. And today, every time you see a documentary on the 60s, there's going to be a brief clip from Easy Rider. And Steppenwolf's um, head out on the highway looking for adventure, that song. Uh, <laughs> Born to be wild. If that's not the anthem of the '60s, what is? Exactly. I actually, I think I first discovered. Um, let's see, Dennis Hopper. I remember seeing a television broadcast of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Yeah. He plays yeah. one of the young Clantons. Yes. And he he had the ability to play these kind of Weasley characters so well. He did. He did. He would on. He was um, he was unhappy with his career after doing Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. He was rather unhappy with Warner Brothers' handling of his career because they were always they they kept saying we want you to do a western, and he says I don't want to do a TV series because he felt that he would be locked into it. But later on, he admitted that lots of people who did TV series uh, 
jump to the movies, James Garner, Steve McQueen. Um, but he said that when he did play on Westerns, he always came in as a villain because the hero was already cast. <laughs> I know, I think I read somewhere that uh, John Wayne kind of revived his career. Uh, John Wayne revived. John Wayne and Henry Hathaway, that's a complicated story because Henry Hathaway first banished him into the, uh, I guess you could say, uh, a forbidden zone because they fought like cats and dogs on a movie called From Hell to Texas. They were constantly fighting over Hopper's interpretation of his supporting role. And when the movie was over, Henry Hathaway went over to um, Dennis Hopper and hugged him and said, kid, I can tell you one thing, you're never going to work in this town again. And then after Hopper married Brooke Hayward in the 60s, he was invited uh, to come into uh, Hathaway's office and Hathaway told him that the Duke and I know that you married a nice English girl who had a nice, nice Irish girl who had a nice Irish mother. And we think it's time for you to go back to work again, but just make sure you don't give me any of that method shit. <laughs> That's what. And Dennis Hopper said that he learned that um, he learned from Hathaway, actually, he said a great deal about a simple direct way to direct. Yeah, Hathaway, as I recall, was a was part of that that generation, the John Fords, the uh, uh, the George Marshalls, the gritty oh. Western directors. Who? Yes, uh, I think Sam Fuller's probably in that class as well as Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, they watch call it Hathaway was a Dennis Hopper. It wasn't just the Dennis Hopper personally provoked Hathaway. Hathaway was, as Hopper said, a yeller and a screamer. He always, for some reason, picked on people. Uh, even, um, even Cardiff, the cinematographer, I forgot his first name, but Jack, Jack Cardiff worked on a movie, uh, I think the one with John Wayne and Sophia Loren, where, uh, where they're searching for treasure in the desert but anyway he said that uh he was very hard on some technical people in the movie half uh, cardiff said so for some reason and oh i can tell a couple other quick anecdotes uh on true grit on true grit um he would uh, pick on some prop man or something like that and um uh what's her name uh uh, Darby, Kim Darby, Darby, Kim Darby said to him uh, that it, it was it was bothering her. It was hard to hard to look at, hard to take, and he and he said, uh, uh, and he said, I'm sorry, much of call it, uh, and he laid off. And Glenn Campbell, at one time, he told Glenn Campbell something harsh, and he said, you know, Henry, I can get on my horse. I can ride out to the parking lot and I can go home to Malibu. I don't ever have to come back here again. And Hathaway admitted, he said, 
you know something i i think i really i agree i think i have been rather hard on you it's amazing how many of these directors of that era could get away with murder because of the power they had i mean yeah. you know the the, uh, the actors were generally under contract. They had to work uh, on these shows. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard about abusive directors, uh, you know, um, so um, these stories are not surprising. I, I interviewed Henry Hathaway back in 1950, uh, not 1950, in 1974. Uh, I was interested in his biography of Erwin Rommel, The Desert Fox. Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, it's interesting because we said, we talked earlier about movies with um, kind of pre-title sequences. His movie, The Desert Fox, qualifies as one of the earliest. It starts, you see the logo of 20th Century Fox, but the movie begins uh, uh, before the titles with the commando raid on Rommel's headquarters in, in, uh, in Libya. Um, so you've written these two books. You've written many magazine articles. Um, are you still in love with Hollywood? Uh, I'm in love with movies when they're good. What was the last good movie you saw? Oh, boy. Uh, new movies? Jeez, you know, I really don't see that many new movies because so many of them are superhero films, and I'm just not interested in superhero films. The, I tend to watch Turner Classic Movies a lot and uh hbo max and stuff that i can stream on the computer um so i ask this question generally of my guests especially the film historians you're sent to a area where you're only allowed to bring one movie with you to play for the rest of your life and what movie would you be playing and oh, never wow. getting tired of What, which one? Thing here, I'll tell you one which would, I mean, I can't narrow it all down to, I can pick one that I think is excellent, and that is Gun Crazy. Oh, wow. I'm not familiar with that one. With John Dahl and... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, is that Cummings. Kathy O'Donnell? Uh, no, not Kathy O'Donnell. Cummings is her name. Oh. Uh, or John Dahl. Peggy Cummings? As a child, he develops a fascination for guns, but he also doesn't want to kill anything or anybody. And then he sees a circus sideshow with a woman who um, uh, Annie Laurie Starr is the character's name, who has a sort of shooting exhibition. And he is both erotically drawn to her uh, Peggy Cummins. Peggy Cummins is the actress. Peggy Cummins. He is both erotically drawn to her, but also drawn to her because of her way with guns. And they go on a crime spree. It's it's similar in some ways to Bonnie and Clyde. And I won't give the rest of the movie away, but um, it has some amazing sequences where bank heists were filmed for the camera off from the inside of their getaway car all location filming. It was directed by Joseph H. Lewis, who directed a lot of, uh, a number of film noirs. And it's really a remarkable film. If you haven't seen it, definitely worth looking at.
Well, Ed, Eddie on uh, TCM probably has that in his uh, and his. Oh best yeah. Of. Oh yes, I think he. I think he's shown it. Yeah. No, he's. Uh, Eddie Muller. Eddie Muller, thank you. Yes, definitely, definitely. Well, I've been catching up on my film noirs because that was not a genre I was comfortable talking about for many years. So I hadn't seen some of the classic ones. I mean, I'd seen The Asphalt Jungle, the John Huston film many times, but I've been catching up on my film, uh, uh, definitely on my films of that ilk. Uh, one of my more favorite ones was Thieves Highway. I think that's with Richard Conti. That's right. Thieves Highway with Richard Conti, Lee J. Cobb, Valentina Corteza. Yes. I think Millard Mitchell might be in that as well. Yes, I think Millard Mitchell is in it. That's correct. I just there read about it because I just recently read Eddie Muller's book, Dark City. Ah, very, very good. So let me ask you a question. Um, do you have any other books that are in the near future that you want to write? Um, right now, uh, I am actually working on expanding the Nick Adams article. I don't know if it will be long enough to be uh, a full length biography, but since I plan to publish it probably as a Kindle ebook on Amazon, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to satisfy a commercial publisher's uh, requirements as to length. I mean, commercial publishers won't publish, generally won't publish anything shorter than uh, 200 pages. But um, if I publish it myself, the length of it is not going to be a crucial matter. So I've been going through some of my research material and also trying to <coughs> locate some people who still might be alive who can share their recollection. I spoke to Robert Wagner, the actor, who shared his recollections about uh, Nick Adams with me. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I, I interviewed Robert Wagner as well about his mem remembrances of working with Steve McQueen on Hellas, uh, on, excuse me, on The War Lover. But uh, Hell is for Heroes is a chapter in my book. Uh, in fact, if you want to utilize it as one of your resources, I did a chapter in my first book, Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 1970. And I interviewed everybody I could find on behind the camera on Hell is for Heroes. And I thought Nick did a very good job playing Homer, the, uh, the refugee. That's right. The Polish... Uh... Polish refugee. That's right. Martin Racken, who was the head of Paramount at the time, uh, Andrew Fennedy told me this story. He called Nick up and said, how would you like to play a Polish DP, displaced person? And uh, Nick, who was Ukrainian or Polish, it's not really sure, but close, uh, said, sure, if you build me a new fence on my house. And that's what they did. And that's what he did. Interesting. Uh, Bob Pyrosh, who wrote yes. the screenplay. Who later created Combat. Later created Combat. He was a friend and uh, he um, was a triple threat on that movie. He was going to produce and direct and obviously his writing, uh, but he got into trouble with Steve McQueen. He did not agree with some of Steve's ideas and they got into a fight 
and uh, he was let go. And they brought in Don Siegel. And I thought yeah. Don Siegel did a great job on that movie. Pyrosh's one complaint about Nick was he thought he was too old to play the part. I guess this was based on an actual incident that uh, happened to Pyrosh. And uh, these characters were all characters he had met in the army when, he's, when he was a sergeant in the 35th Infantry Division. And Homer was, a, was literally a kid who was driving them crazy because right. he wanted to come back with them. Right. But I, I thought Nick was a lot of fun. Uh, he has that, chi that chilling moment where he goes up to Steve McQueen and says, I, I go up to the front, I fight. And Steve McQueen- Come up to the front, I'll blow your head off. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, did uh, how did uh, Pyrosh, uh, is that how he pronounced his name? Yeah, Robert Pyrosh. Really, because Pyrosh, uh, is the Hungarian word for red, Pirosh. That's oh, how it's pronounced. It's a Hungarian name or Hungarian word, Pirosh. Well, I, I first interviewed him in 1974 for my book. We actually, in addition to Hell is for Heroes, we did a chapter on Battleground. And of course, oh, yeah. that, that won Pyrosh his Oscar that year for best original. Oh, wow. Film. I didn't know he had an Oscar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting character. I, my, my feeling about Bob Pyrus all along was he was the guy who did not suffer fools gladly, and he would oh. get into major hot water. Um, th there's some interesting credits for him, but we won't we'll talk about that another time. But uh, certainly Nick Adams is all, all it pops up all over the 50s and 60s. I, I enjoyed his work immensely. And I, I wish you good luck with that book. I hope I, I would like to see that. And like I said, if you need any research material, please let me know. Thank you. Well, uh, Peter, this has been terrific for the listeners. We've been chatting very nicely with Peter Winkler, the author of these two wonderful books on James Dean and Dennis Hopper and the future book on Nick Adams. Uh, thank you for joining us today on the Lock 22 Network uh, on behalf of myself and Ben Shrewsbury, our producer. Uh, we welcome you to these podcasts and we look forward to seeing you or, or listening to you or letting you listen to us in the future. And Peter, thank you and Godspeed to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.